Hello fellow aviators, welcome to JPL Aviation, where leadership and aviation take off. Today I'm with Mike Tai, who is a SoCal Tracon controller based in San Diego. How you doing, Mike? Doing well, Justin. Thanks for having me on, brother. Of course. I'm so excited to be able to get you on the show right now because I have a check ride on August 14th coming up, and a lot of IFR has to do with the control and the communications and how you get from point A to point B efficiently. So um, let's get right into it. Communications, the biggest part about a pilot to air traffic controller um, you know, situation is what would you say are some common errors that most pilots make when they're talking to ATC? Yeah, that's a great question. And did you want to talk, touch on like VFR pop-ups or, or what aspect of the communication? So let's, let's start with IFR right now and then we can get into VFR. Okay, IFR, I would just say most pilots, once they get to the IFR stage, I feel I'm pretty proficient on the radios. Most of our issues come with the student uh, pilots, like the you know the private pilot types, our uh, aspiring private pilots, which I know you already have that right. You're just you're working on your instrument. Yes. Um, as far as communications with instruments, I don't I can't think of anything that comes to mind initially except just read back as quickly and concisely as possible. So all you need is your last three of your call sign, you know, November one, two, three, descend and maintain 5,000. You can just say 5,000, November one, two, three. Um, just give a quick, concise read back. Make sure you're listening up to the radio. And yeah, that, that's all that really comes to mind with read back errors on IFR aircraft. And just make sure, I think frequency awareness is huge. When there's a lot of congestion on the frequency and this could be relevant to you soon because you'll be in the cockpit talking with your CF, your instructor, your CFI. Um, so you guys will be talking. You know he's going to be trying to coach you while simultaneously having radio awareness. So oftentimes, and it depends on the controller and their cadence when they speak. But most people, when it gets busy, have a tendency to speak more quickly as well. You know to try to get as many transmissions out as possible. So you know they might say November one two three turn left heading three five zero. And then someone just reads back three five zero Roger, and then it's they're going to have to make you come back because all the liability is on us. So if you only read back three five zero, even though I might know, okay, that sounded like that pilot's voice. You know, it could have been the only female pilot on frequency, and I heard a female say Roger three five zero. It's the liability falls on us to say, hey, verify November one two three fly heading three five zero. So make sure you just give the call sign. Just the last three is all you need, and and whatever the instruction was. Um, a lot of similar sounding call signs out there. There's a lot of Skyhawks with Sierra Papa at the end. A lot of Diamond Stars, I believe, that end in Delta Sierra. So if you're flying one of those planes that are part of a fleet, you're likely to run into a, a situation where there might be 626 Delta Sierra on frequency and 636 Delta Sierra on frequency. So the controller should have some awareness to that and really enunciate. And they should make the pilot aware of this situation and you as well should enunciate and speak the full call sign you know just to prevent any situations where 636 delta sierra take a vector along with 626 delta sierra if that makes sense oh, 100% i think you uh, you opened up a lot of can of worms there so let's start <laughs> let's start dissecting it piece by piece so first off situation situational awareness in the cockpit 
Um, I have had some times when you're on a long cross country or something, you're talking to um, an air traffic controller and you may be chatting with your instructor. For example, I was on the way back from Santa Barbara um, on my IFR long cross country and we both missed a call from the uh, the Tracon that was up there because <coughs> it's like you're having a conversation, we're discussing IFR stuff and you miss something. What is your kind of mindset as a SoCal controller um, when, you, when you're calling to hear a pilot and you know they're on a long cross country and it takes them like maybe a little bit longer to reply yeah so the problem is a lot of air traffic controllers so probably about i don't even know the percentage i know at certain facilities i run the numbers you know like 30 percent of us were pilots as well some commercial um so a small fraction of controllers are actually pilots where they'd see and they'd be able to empathize with the other side most controllers they just think a pilot is sitting there adamantly listening to the frequency and they have nothing else going on you know because and to their defense, to the controller's defense, all they see is a blip on the radar scope. So it's just very transactional and robotic. So when you don't hear, I think there's an inherent response in most humans, especially when they don't can't empathize with the pilots on why the hell aren't you listening? That that is their first thought. So you know, 50% of the crowd might get a little snippy with you. Um, I think if you just respond, hey, was that for November one, two, three, or you know, say again, approach. Um, they'll they'll be happy to to give you the vector again but yeah I, I think a lot of pilots a lot of controllers don't see the pilot side of that if that makes sense they don't realize like in your situation that you're flying with a cf double i who's simultaneously trying to coach you while listening to the frequency it's a lot of workload for the pilots and i understand that yeah 100 percent um and so the next thing you also did mention closing that off was uh, the cadence. I thought that was pretty interesting because I do notice, you know, sometimes when you do have certain like a uh, Niner Juliet Charlie or like, you know, six, four Charlie, it's like, you kind of hear the Charlie at the end. And you don't really hear the whole thing. And sometimes you have ones that, that coincide, right? Um, you, you mentioned the cadence of the controllers. Is that something you guys specifically work on to, um, you know, is that taught or is that something that you pick up on to make sure that pilots differentiate between numbers? Yeah, enunciation isn't really taught. It's just some people, you know, I work with some people who speak really quick when it gets busy. I think they just get nervous. There's a lot of pressure. And when you're nervous, you tend to do things more quickly, especially with speaking. When you have so many tasks, so many cues in your head of, okay, I have like five tasks to do right now, and they all need to happen almost simultaneously. So I need to speak as quickly as possible. Where other folks, when, it, when I get really busy, just to kind of keep myself calm, I try to speak as slowly as possible and it almost sounds condescending, but I get very few readback issues. I speak unnaturally slow and my cadence is extremely slow when I'm busy, or I try to be, um, just so there's minimal readback issues. And um, like someone who's on a cross country, if I know, like, hey, Justin, you were, you've been flying across the airspace for 20 minutes, I haven't said a word to you. If I'm going to suddenly reach out to you, I'm not quickly going to say, hey, November 6th, November 6th, Delta Sierra, turn 10 degrees left. Because you are probably deep in a conversation, like, what was that for us? So I think, Every time. you know, a lot of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you're going to look at your instructor and be like, who was that for? Um, so I try to be aware of that. And if, if I haven't spoke out to someone, I'm going to reach out slowly and say, November 626 Delta Sierra, turn 10 degrees left. Um, and it sounds stupid, but it's it's just effective and it, it mitigates readback errors. <laughs> and I think honestly, because as a pilot, we kind of have the opposite effect of we have the saturation levels in the cockpit. So 
Um, for example, there's a guy out in Palm Springs, and he's a you know he has a big YouTube channel, and he always says that you know his thing is he can take any pilot and he'll get them in the cockpit and he'll overload them with tasks that they have to do to the point where they forget to say their name. And I and he'll be like they'll be during doing all these tasks, and he'll say you know like I'll make you forget to say your name. He'll say what's your name, and they're like I stand by, you know like I'm busy doing stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I've noticed in myself sometimes when I was at the beginning stages of my IFR training, trying to fly the aircraft, you know, trying to work the comms for the first time, and my words would actually like start to slow down and slur because everything was moving so fast in my head with the aircraft and trying to, you know, time, turn, talk, twist, tune, right? Um, and when it came to actually like understanding the controller, them speaking slow made it seem like I could understand it a lot easier as well. So I, I definitely pick up on what you're saying with that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, let's just talk about practice. Actually, first question before that. Um, I was talking to someone recently who's kind of like a mentor to me, and he said specifically for IFR flying, the AIM, Aeronautical Information Manual, has a lot of information in there regards to phraseology that is very important. Um, and so I was wondering what in your training did you incorporate with the AIM, and how is our pilots best to use that to make sure that we are saying the right things with you? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question. Um, so air traffic controllers don't look at the AIM at all. Um, they, it's not part of our curriculum. The AIM, I view it now as a, as a pilot, it's a great uh, source to reference. I view the AIM as a liaison for pilots to air traffic controllers and just the, the, the national airspace system. Um, so yeah, your question is, what was my experience with it on the controller side? The answer would be none. none. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I know there's a lot of reference, as you said, for pilots to best communicate with controllers. So on that issue, the fun question would be, what are some pet peeves you have about radio communications that people do? Pet peeves about radio communications. So some people, and I notice this a lot. So Justin, let's just say you just departed Long Beach, you're getting flight falling. You're going on a little cross country down to Montgomery Field. So Long Beach Tower, you know, that you're clear for takeoff. You're on the upwind, they say contact departure. You hit the frequency without even seeing what's going on the frequency. You immediately hit your the, the pickle switch right on your yoke, and, and you start transmitting. Approach at 626 Delta off 600. Meanwhile, you didn't even realize Southwest is doing a readback. Someone else is trying to call. The whole time, it's just go, making a squealing sound, and then someone eventually goes blocked. You know, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the key word when multiple transmissions are made at once. A pilot will say blocked. Um, so I would say on departure... When you tune in, every time you tune in a new frequency, pause. See what the cadence is in the frequency. Get, get, a, get a feel for the vibe and then make your transmission. Like if you, if you check into the departure frequency 2535 off Long Beach and you hear ATC just finished saying Southwest 100 clear visual approach, some, you know, whatever it may be, obviously that Southwest pilot now needs to read that back. So don't, in that break of silence, transmit. You know, ha have some awareness. And I know that's almost graduate level stuff for someone who's, still learning how to start a plane or maybe even taxi, which is the case with a lot of students. Yep. So it's hard to get that mad at them, but it's still slightly frustrating. Um, but you know, it's, it's nothing that's gonna ruin anything. You're not breaking any rules. It's just more of an etiquette. 100%. Yeah, it's great advice. That's something I think is pretty typical that people learn in their aviation training not to step on it real quick, but it still happens for all of us and even the best of the best do it. Yeah. So let's go um, starting from the ground up to the, you know, en route, then to approaches. So first starting off on the ground, let's say I'm at an uncontrolled airport. 
What are some ways that I can contact you? So the ways you can contact ATC. To pick up an IFR clearance. Yes. So most, in most situations from the ground, you can use the local TRACON frequency. You can call on the frequency from your plane and get the clearance over the frequency. Now, that is how it's supposed to happen in theory. In practicality, a lot of the times when a pilot is on the ground, our receivers cannot detect your transmissions. I know this is the case at Orange County Airport. You have to call. Um, there's something that controllers call the Watts line. Pilots don't have to know this. It's just basically the number to SoCal Tracon that you call. And that, in most airports, that, that is the guaranteed method to get your IFR clearance. Now, obviously, you can't sit in your plane and do it. You're just going to have to do it before you even start up, which is which is nice. It saves you a little Hobbs time if that's what you're going for. Save you uh, the, the point uh, the point zero one on the Hobbs. Um, but the most surefire method is call that number, and um, and you can get the you can get the the clearance there. Hundred percent. That sounds like an awesome way to get in contact with you. So after I pick up my clearance. Um, at an uncontrolled airport, let's say I, you know, take off, I'm doing a zero, zero takeoff because I'm crazy, part 91, and uh, um, I'm flying in the soup. How do I enter your system and what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question and there's so many dynamics here. So are you, are you familiar with an ODP, obstacle departure procedure? Let's get into it. Okay. So obstacle departure procedures, most airports will have this and it's listed in the approach plates, I believe. Um, I'm, I'm not an instrument pilot, just VFR, but I, I do have to reference it on occasion, um, you know, just from the air traffic control side. When, when a pilot calls, it's so rare. I'll be working the overnight shift and he wants the ODP and I'm like, oh God, what, what is the ODP for Long Beach runway one, two? You know, there's, it's because they're so random. It'll be like fly heading seven or fly runway heading to 700 feet, then turn proceed direct Seal Beach. Um, so first thing you can reference is the ODP. And if you want to fly the ODP, you just advise ATC that I'll be I'll be flying the obstacle departure to P, to, to procedure. Now, what ATC is going to give you, you're going to file that ODP, which is supposed to protect you from terrain until you get to a minimum altitude. At which point, we can assign you a radar vector. So it'll be via the ODP when entering controlled airspace, fly heading, blah blah blah, maintain X. If that makes sense. One hundred percent. And. Uh... There, uh, there's also given a void time when you request ODPs to get off the ground. How does that look like on your end? Because obviously you have like the uncontrolled, let's stay with uncontrolled airport. So you have the yeah. void time, you don't make it. So you're just like really close to it. What does that look like for you? Just talk about void times. Yeah. And I, I just want to add a little more something to the ODP conversation because I don't want pilots to think that's their only option. It's the most complex of the options and maybe appropriate in very rural areas. At SoCal Tracon, most of our airports have standard instrument departure procedures you can fly, even off Orange County. You can just say, I wanna fly the muscle departure. And that's probably gonna be much more simple than the ODP, just depending on which direction you're trying to go. Or we have, and, and pilots can't see this, we have what's called diverse vectoring areas. So if you call me for a clearance from any of these airports, I'm just gonna give you heading and altitude to maintain, and it's probably way easier for you instead of looking up the ODP. So we have certain, like off Orange County, I forget the certain parameters, but if you know, within 10 degrees, um, if you're departing runway 20 right, I can give a heading, let's say, to 177 all the way around to 355. Um, and I, and you can just fly that and climb. 
and there is a certain gradient of climb, a certain rate of climb you have to be able to maintain to fly the DVA. Um, but they basically turped out that area that there's no terrain, so I can, I'm safe to assign you a vector and an altitude on departure, and if that makes sense. Climb it up. Yeah, 100%. Um, and also one of my mandatory reporting um, things that I have to report to you in regards to my uh, climbing <clears throat> performance, if I'm less than 500 feet per minute, um, that is something I have to report to ATC or Tracon while I am in route. So as I'm climbing up. Um, so what does that look like on your end if I'm not making that 500 feet per minute climb? So air traffic controllers are not going to assure or ascertain, <clears throat> excuse me, that you are making the appropriate climb rate. That's on the pilot. We don't really have equipment that can tell us your rate of climb. It's just basically, you know, basically looking at time and the altitude gains. I'd, you'd have to be really observant. So that is on the pilot to say, unable, I can't do the DV, DVA. I need to fly the ODP if, if, if you can't maintain whatever those minimums specified are yeah. in the climb. Yeah, it's 200 feet per nautical mile, I believe, for the standard, okay. in, standard instrument takeoff departure, just like if you fly straight out over the runway. And it starts at 35 feet over the threshold. That's a check right Okay. So, there you go. There. Um, uh, hey, I'm impressed, man. I'll pass you. <laughs> 100%. Um, so let's go to at a controlled airport taking off. So I'm going to call up clearance delivery. They're going to you know, write down my IFR plan. Um, I'm, I'm going to request what I need. What does that look like from your end, from tower to you? Okay, so from a controlled airport, you just copied your clearance, you're saying, right? Yeah, so I just called, you know, I said, hey, I want uh, to go to Santa Barbara, 9,000, um, you know, picking up my whole clearance. We're ready to copy, right? So they, they write it all down. How does that interaction work between you and um, the tower? And let me do note, I did have a air traffic controller on here who worked at John Wayne for almost 20 years. He worked at LAX in Washington. And so I was, yeah. able, I was able to do a uh, tower tour of Long Beach. And nice. uh, I got to see that they have like IFR strips that come out of the machine. Um, and that's kind of how they get it when people send it in. So I just wanted to know how exactly that goes from the tower to you at Tracon. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So when you obviously when you're talking to clearance delivery, and maybe it's not obvious, I guess as a pilot, you don't need to know this. You're talking to someone at the control tower when the control tower is open. So you're not even talking to someone at the Tracon. It's someone up in that tower you see at the airport, you're speaking with them. Then they switch it over to ground, who switches over to the local controller, the tower controller. Now, how that interacts with the Tracon. So when you file your flight plan, we get a flight strip that pops out 30 minutes prior to your proposed time. Um, and then it's also in our flight plan list on our radar scope. The sectors are getting so busy that we don't really have time to look at your flight plan. Like we're, we don't really look at the strips most of the time because it's, it's just too much volume to take your eyes off the scope and start digging through flight strips and looking at paper. So we have a, a flight plan list on our radar scope, and that provides very rudimentary information. That's basically call sign type aircrafts and first fix in your route that's relevant to us. Just to let, it lets us know which way we need to flow you. Like if you're departing Orange County, you're a jet, you're going to Vegas, we don't need to know you're going to Vegas. We just need to go need, need to know your initial routing is Seal Beach, Pomona, Daggett. And then after that, it's not our problem. We, we switch it to the center. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how 
the clearance process, the IFR clearance process interacts with the Tracon at the stage that you just mentioned. Nice. Yeah. So they're connected to each other in regards to getting the strip at the same time, which actually yes. makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. And also, from my understanding, um, tower controls, you know, terminal area near the airport, you control, especially for the larger jets, um, the, the, ascent, the descent and arrival, I mean, descent and takeoff type. And then when they're up high up in the atmosphere, that's when you'll put them over to center, correct? Mm-hmm. Perfect. And then anything below 18,000 feet is, um, in regards to general aviation crews at like 9,000, 10,000, you guys would also handle that? Yeah. In most circumstances, there are areas out east. If you ever do like a cross country out to Palm Springs, where we, our radar at SoCal Tracon doesn't hit the plains east of that mountain range. So I forget the name of that mountain range, but the, they're about 11,000 feet right by Palm Springs. Um, so that's LA center that you'll be talking to in most circumstances, you'll be talking to Tracon when you're near a major airport, you know, below 15,000 feet. Yeah. That's, it's, uh, near the Banning pass, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. And which would make sense because those mountains will probably stop your radar coverage, correct? Yes. Yeah. You got it. hundred percent. So, um, up next, I kind of want to dive into the weather a little bit. What, guidance and things could you provide on your your screen for a pilot what would be some useful information that you could provide yeah um and the fa has really been harping on us for this that we need to do we've gotten a lot of feedback from airline pilots that we don't do a good enough job providing weather information on precipitation so what we see live on the radar scope is precipitation essentially um and it's on varying levels like light moderate and extreme so what you'll hear in practice as you're flying is November 1, 2, 3, area of light to moderate precipitation from your 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, kind of paint the picture of where it is for them, five miles, that tells you how far it is, um, and then we say how, how big it is in diameter, um, you know, five miles in diameter, and if we know the direction, we're supposed to say northeast bound, it's hard to determine the direction, so I usually omit that part, but I'll, I'll give that piece of information. Outside of observing the precipitation, everything's on pilot reports as far as icing and everything. Um, so if you're encountering icing, um, obviously you're going to notify ATC because you likely need to switch altitudes. That's a um, and then, as well. That, what's, what's the mandatory? It's a report. If, you have, if you're in, in icing, you got to report. That, okay. So. Yeah. yeah, that's good because uh, we definitely need that information because, you know, you're helping the next guy behind you that might be flying a 152 and he can't take much ice. So. 100%. Um, when you give us that information, you know, icing. And we slowed down. I lost you for a second. I don't know if you can hear me or not. Reconnect. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Go ahead. You got reconnected. Yeah, so when you give us any kind of pirate, like turbulence and icing, we make a note of it on this board that we have, this digital screen that's right next to each sector, and we can become aware of that and help pilots get around it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like uh, something very useful for pilots in flight. Obviously, flying in SoCal, I have not yet encountered that because I don't have my IFR rating yet either. So any days where it's going to be super rainy here, usually the ceilings are not flyable. <laughs> um, yeah. So, interesting. Um, and also, just like a really random question I thought about, hard to hear radios. So how do you deal with people who just have radios that are super I, – I hear sometimes you guys will respond to things that I'm like, I had no idea what the heck that pilot just said. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, like, what your kind of thoughts are on, like, hard-to-hear radios. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll try to work with the pilot if, it, if it's manageable. If it's clear but kind of weak, 
Maybe they just need to move their boom a little closer to their mouth. They have a boom that's, you know, pointing sideways, that's pointing at their passenger. Yeah. Um, I guess the mic, not the boom, but the microphone. Boom is like a term we use um, if your microphone's not your, near your mouth. I think a lot of times this happens in practice and it may sound kind of like rude, but if I hear a pilot come off an airport and their radio is broken, sometimes I can understand what they're saying, but barely. I'll just say unreadable because I don't want them to think that if I even respond to them, they can just keep flying and causing problems all the way down to wherever their destination is. So it kind of just forces them to land and and fix and troubleshoot the radio issue. Interesting. Um, yeah, and also mode C altimeters and obviously with the ADSB out, how does that look for you guys now compared to before the ADSB mandates? Yeah, um, that's a good question because a lot of pilots think we enforce the ADSB. We do not. So if you don't have an ADSB, ATC is never going to notice, and they honestly don't care. I know we work for the FAA, so you're like, oh god, they, they, these FAA guys are going to snitch on me, because pilots often ask, hey, can you do an ADSB check for us? The at, real true answer is no, we cannot. Yes, I can see it, but I'm not legally allowed to verify it. So I just usually say no, because I don't want the pilot to think I just gave him an official certification. He has to go to the website. Oh, uh, see, the more you know, right? Yeah, exactly. So ATC doesn't really care about this ADSB stuff. It does help us see call signs. Um, you know, if 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 I heard a call sign wrong, I can check the ADSB information and, and maybe correct the number that I think I got wrong. But outside of that, yeah, ADSB hasn't really affected the job much for us. Okay, cool. Um, so let's dive into more of the in routes type scenarios. Um, I'm say I'm taking off out of John Wayne. I'm headed down to, you know, Palomar, and I'm flying on the Victor Airway. Um, how, what is a, a, a preferred, obviously you want to fly centerline, but obviously those, those airways are four nautical miles wide on each side. Let's say you have multiple traffic coming through. What would be your kind of procedures to um, deal with multiple airplanes on one airway? Multiple airplanes on one airway going the same direction? Yeah, does that happen, or is that something that you guys face yeah. out? or? Yeah, it happens all the time. So let's say you're flying your Cessna 172 and right behind you on Victor 23 is a Bonanza or a Cirrus and they're eating you up. We have several options. My least favorite is to slow the, the fast guy. He, he, he's, fly, he's paying the money for the expensive plane. He wants to cruise. I'll let him cruise to the maximum extent possible. Now, if an air traffic controller decides to slow them, they're well within the right to do that. I just don't like that method. What we can do is we have to have three miles separation or 1,000 feet. So we can descend one of you or climb one of you to create that 1,000 feet till the overtake occurs and then get back to the normal altitudes. Additionally, we're allowed to do 15 degree diverging courses. So I can essentially let that Bonanza run right up to your tail about three and a half miles in trail and tell him to turn 15 degrees right and let him overtake you as, as he slightly diverges off your right um, and then get him back on the route. Um, and this gets kind of complicated where, and I guess this is good for you to know, Justin, because an air traffic controller might ask you to do this. And and it's something that probably isn't discussed much with all the nuances you need to learn as a, from this, you know, for your instrument rating. So in that situation, the Bonanza is probably only going to pass about a mile off your right, but the FAA deems this safe for us to do because he's diverging. You know, he's pulling away from you further. What I would do to get that Bonanza back on course so he doesn't have to continue to diverge from the airway is say, let's say you're flying Cessna 123, Cessna 123, traffic three o'clock, one mile, diverging northeastbound, Bonanza 6,000. If you say in sight, I'm then gonna say, maintain visual separation from that traffic. 
Now, what that allows me to do is go below my separation minimums, and it's on you to miss him. But I'm not going to put you in a situation where he's even going to come close to you. It just allows us to get within that three-mile ring and keep the, uh, keep the operation moving efficiently. So you as an IFR pilot, if you see a Bonanza pass a mile or two in front of you, you don't care. The FAA cares because they, need, they tell us we need three miles. So when I say maintain visual separation from that traffic or the air traffic controller says that, this is where a lot of new pilots get it wrong. You need to read back with your call sign and verbatim what they said. Roger, November 1, 2, 3, I'll maintain visual separation from the Bonanza. And then, then we're good. Which makes sense because as soon as you get in sight, yeah, it actually sounds. I think I've been in that type of situation before. Because as soon as you get them in sight, your your minimums go down, correct, in order for distance wise, and you can maintain the separation. Yeah, and so then I can get rid of that fifteen degree divergent course, get that bonanza back on his merry way to Camarillo, wherever he wants to go, because he's probably like, hey, why are we on this stupid vector? (laughs) Uh, So, just need the pilots to help us out with a good read back on that. Good readbacks are always necessary in IFR flying, so I appreciate that. Um, so up next would be just random funny question. Whenever you see pilots flying, like say for example when I'm first starting my training and like here's the Victor Airway, right? And you see me kind of going like this, like does that always indicate to you that like, you know, you should lo- use a little more caution for this person? Because sometimes I look at my nav tracks after when I was first training and it's like all over the place just trying to track the airways and stuff. So I was like wondering on your end, like what goes through your head when you see that? Um, it, it depends on each individual. If I have nothing going on, if it's dead, I'll just let you zigzag all the way to all the way to monitoring. I don't care. Yeah. Um, if there's a lot of traffic and you're, you know, might cause me a separation error where you're getting your zigzagging is might cause me to lose that three miles. Then I might just bring it to your attention, like, hey, fly this heading to join the airway, please. I need you. I need you established. Nice. Um, but otherwise, I'll let you uh, zigzag as long as you want. <laughs> Sounds great. In regards to vectoring, that's another great um, topic to talk about. If I am in routes, and um, at what point do you usually give vectors as opposed to actually flying um, the approach? Like, so you're starting to pull up on the approach, and I've never flown a full approach yet, and I don't know why that's, you know, that is that always going to be the case or is that going to be like when i first started my ifr training i would look at these approach procedures and i'd be like oh my gosh this is so much work you know time to yeah. just talk to all these different points you know step downs all the way but then as soon as we got up my instructor's like yeah chillax you know like it's not that big of a deal because we get this radar vector coming in every single time and it makes it so much easier but i was just wondering on your end you know what's the process behind that yeah that, that's a great question so and i i know you mentioned offline before we started that you have the Long Beach ILS 30 approach plates in front of you. Are you still seeing those? I do. Okay, so to fly the full procedure would be like if you see Ezkel from the southeast, and that that ties in with Lucig, I believe, just going off memory, but... Yes. Okay, so airline pilots will allow to go out to Ezkel because it ties in with the star. So we'll say at Ezkel, cleared ILS, and they'll just fly the approach. That's for the uh, GPS. The GPS, it's on the RNAV Yankee, and it's on the ILS. Yes. Um, so they all, they've kind of made all those approaches coalesce, so all the terms are the same. Cause at, a point, at one point, GPS fixes had different names. Um, now, the disadvantage to us to take a Cessna out that far is you are so slow that if we let you go all the way out to Ezkel and we have a bunch of JetBlues and Southwest coming in, by the time you even get to the initial approach fix or, or the final approach fix, it's going to take you like 10 minutes. And, and, and there's likelihood in that time, we're going to have four more jets coming in. We're going to have to break you out of the approach. Sorry, it didn't work. So that's why when you're flying a slower aircraft that isn't doing 180 knots, at least, 
we're going to bring you right to about an eight mile final and turn you in. Now you can request that if you want the training, Justin. Don't be afraid to ask ATC. Hey, can I can I get the approach from Ezcal or from you know whatever the uh, the full procedure would be? That's not um, bad, actually. That's a really good point because I think now, like back in my training, and especially when it comes to the check ride, that takes so much as off you as a pilot because as a pilot, I'm coming in here right, and I have different points um, coming from different uh, you know VORs in in regards to. to tuning them in and identifying where I'm at along the approach. And if I could say, Hey, can you give me, you know, straight to gunny or, you know, if I was in this case, you know, going to the Lucig, if I could get that every single time and I just requested, that would actually make my check right a lot easier. So I'm not just kind of guessing with a, uh, a radial pinned in on, you know, 115.7, uh, waiting to see which one I'm going to pick up. And then that's just, that's less work for me to do as a pilot. So that's a really good tip. And are you saying you would prefer the vectors or just direct a fix such as Lucig no. in this in this situation? Well, the vectors are great as well, um, but I'm saying in regards to like, for example, I'll be over in Chino and along Chino's um, approach course, there's a ton of um, radials that you would have to time. I mean, that you would have to tune in um, because they could fly you along the um, the southern side of it. And then you're still wait. You're literally on a vector, just waiting to be turned in. And so at each point, you're looking down at your your four flight, and you're trying to figure out, you know, okay, are they going to turn me in at this point? Are they going to turn me in at this point? And so that's one less thing to have to think about. And so now that you say that you have an option to say, hey, um, can you turn me straight into Lucig on this approach? That would take my mind off. Um, what I'm more I need to do and I could start setting up my the whole rest of the approach based there on the starting point so yeah um, and, and so a fix like Lucig is pretty practical for ATC because it's not too far out if you say hey ATC can I go out to I believe there's one southeast east of it called is it Maxu mids. right right by uh, mids and then even beyond that there's another one southeast um so if you want to go all the way up to mids, that's a little far for how slow your plane is. Yeah. Um, the closer in you request on the fix, the more likely it is to get approved um, by ATC. And something to keep in mind, if, if you are on a vector, you can expect the turn. So we use something called the 10% rule. So I'm going to let you fly. I'm going to give you on that base vector, which is perpendicular to the localizer or the final approach course until you are 10% of your airspeed from that in distance. So if you're going 120 knots, once you're about 1.2 miles from that localizer, that's why I begin turning you in. So if you ever wonder, oh my God, when are we gonna get this turn? We're five miles away and right around one point, you know, two miles to, to 0.75, it's, it's, there's, a, there's about a minute window there where you can expect ATC to give you that vector. So 90 knots would be Point nine away. Yes, about one mile. About one so if mile. you're going ninety knots, expect right around one mile from that localizer. If you can see it on your GPS, that's where ATC is going to say, "November one, two, three, turn left heading." You know, and they're going to give you the whole clearance. The more you know, this is so valuable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about blowing through the approach course. So I have many times in my um, training where I have been on an approach and I'm getting radar vectors, and the controller completely forgets to turn me onto the localizer or, you know, uh, course. And so what are the options that you have from that? So usually it's not a big deal. Um, oftentimes working so many finals at once that if you're just a Cessna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you blow through before, because maybe there's four transmissions I have to make at the same time, and I'm deciding, weighing them. Okay, do I want Southwest to blow through the Long Beach or the John Wayne localizer, or Cessna 123 to blow through the Long Beach localizer? If Southwest goes through, 
it's going to take them a huge turn to get back on. So I'm going to talk to Southwest, get them turned on. Then I'll come back to you and just give you a left. It's going to be a harder left turn, but everything will work out just fine. We're, we're still going to get you back on the localizer. I mean, as long as you're not going that fast, it'll be, you know, you're going slow enough 90 knots that it'll be an easy turn. And that's great because coming from a, uh, a corporate operational side, um, obviously time is money. And so by you making sure that Southwest goes in first, you probably won't have, I'm kind of, I'm going towards what would be the blowback on that? Like what blowback do you receive if you do something small like that? Not necessarily a huge deal, but you missed a call or whatever. What would be your kind of like uh, reprimand for that? If a Southwest went through a localizer? Yeah, let's say that example. Well, I mean, it happens pretty frequently, and a lot of times I'll do it intentionally. Maybe they're still too high, so I'll say vec we always have to inform. We're, we're supposed to inform you, workload permitting, vectors across the localizer. Just so as you're sitting in your plane, you're not wondering, what the hell's going on? Where's this turn at? So you're like, okay, he's going to take me across. I'll just stand by for that turn. <clears throat> um, so a lot of times it's necessary for, for spacing. Maybe you're a Cessna going into Long Beach and there's a heavy in front of you and we need a little more weight turbulence spacing. So I'm gonna build that space by taking you across or it's necessary because you're high. So I'm gonna let you get down by taking you across then bringing you back. Um, now, and there's, there's you know human error involved of course where oops, I had a brain fart. Here goes Southwest screaming through. The FA, there is no reprimand. They care about recovery. Which, which is how it should be. Okay, how did, how did this guy handle this situation? Did he handle it professionally, and was it safe? So that, that's kind of what they look at. If the, if the pilot is completely out of position and it's a nice day, I'm going to just call, point out the field to him for the visual approach, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, 100%. Um, that makes sense. Uh, contact approaches. I am coming in to John Wayne, and I, have, you know, I, I want a contact approach. What does that look like from your end? Yeah, so... Are you familiar with the contact approach or so you still? I know that's something I need to request. I have not been able to use it yet. And I know uh, for some pilots, it's kind of a rarer thing, but when it does occur, what does that look like on your end? Yeah. You know what? Uh, we talk about this at work occasionally because it's so nuanced and it like never happens. I've never actually seen it. I've been doing ATC since 06, um, but we have to know it. So, and uh, one of my coworkers the other day, we were re reviewing with the trainee, not the other day, but it's probably like four months ago when we were still doing training before COVID. And she goes, uh, guys, what do we do with the contact approach? And he jokingly said, oh, I just tell the pilot to contact approach on 125.35, basically essentially saying, I'm just going to switch that pilot to another frequency because I don't want to deal with it. Um, he was joking, of course. Um, so the contact approach, the <clears throat> I believe the active instrument approach needs to be operable and the pilot needs to initiate the request. We cannot initiate it. So where I've seen it, I worked at Naval Air Station North Island when I was a Navy Air Traffic Controller. And where it could work in practice, if you could visualize Coronado Island, and I know you're in Orange County, so maybe you're not familiar, is maybe there's a visual reference on the ground that runs right into the runway. Let's say Orange County, and I know this isn't the case with Orange County Airport, but just work with me. Let's say there's a train track that you know runs right up to the runway and goes right around it. And you say, well, I can't see the airport, but I see that train track. And I know if I follow that train track to the runway, um, I, I can make this, I can get into this airport. So you say, hey, request the contact approach. And then ATC has to determine if they have their requisite requirements. And that, that's kind of my understanding of how it works. And that, that's how we would approve it, yeah. All right. it's super random, but I, it's good to talk about. No, so. it's a great question. And I think if, a lot of pilots are probably really confused with it too, just as much as air traffic controllers because it, it never occurs. 
It's super rare. Um, yeah, I was yeah. going to a podcast and the guy was saying that like, yeah, like, all my 18 years of flying and I finally got to use one. And like, or I was in a situation <laughs> where I could have used one, but I didn't, you know, because it's yeah. like, it's just that rare. Um, so let's bring up our approach parade again here at uh, Long Beach ILS Localizer Runway 30. Um, as a pilot, I'm looking at my missed approach. I'm looking at my step downs all the way in. Let's talk about these step downs. Well, actually, this one's pretty simple. It's just gunny at 1,600 feet. But let's say, for example, um, what does it look like on your end? What is a good altitude for the pilot to maintain? Because obviously, you're supposed to be at 1,600 or above on this. But oftentimes, during training and stuff, you blow through that on the bottom <laughs> on accident. Yeah. So um, what does that look like on your end? Yeah, so if you get too low, <coughs> I'll address that first. So that becomes a situation, and this is where our phraseology can get confusing to pilots. And I don't like the way the FAA has this word, has this word this. Our phraseology is written by lawyers, you know, just for legal reasons. So we have to say low altitude alert, check your altitude immediately, and then we have to give a minimum altitude in the area. We can use the final approach fix altitude, which would be the best option, or we can use the minimum vectoring altitude, which in that area is 1,600. Um, so you're going to, that's how we would correct you to alert you. Hey, you're getting kind of low. Are you basically, are you okay? Are you, <laughs> um, and then most of the time the pilots will just go, Oh, Roger. Yeah, we're correct. And no big deal. Um, so does that, is that what you were getting at? Getting yeah, too so low it, on the it profile? Sounds lenient is what it is. Cause obviously on the flying side, it's very like, you know, you, pa you pass 1600, you're busted, your check ride. Um, but in regard to the air traffic controller side, it's, it's mostly for our safety too, because that's our, our obstacle clearance. But in exactly. Regards, but it's not something you guys can be like, oh, go to the FAA, they're busted their sixteen hundred feet. No, no, not absolutely. I think you, I think your understanding is one hundred percent on point because it's for your safety. So if you dip too deep, we're not going to reprimand you. We're just going to basically give you a low altitude alert, basically saying, are you okay? Can you see the terrain and obstructions around you? Um, and most of the time, you know, pilots do it intentionally. <laughs> Or, or, or accidentally. When it's for the visual approach, it's intentional. And so what would be something when flying approach that could get a pilot in trouble? When flying an, an approach? Yeah, an approach. It's like an ILS approach into runway 30. Like what would yeah, be ILS approach into runway 30. Um, what could get you in trouble? See, there's nothing really that is going to get you in trouble where we're going to report you to the FISDO and they're going to suspend you. Now, obviously, if you just don't listen to ATC... If, they, if I say November one, two, three vectors across final for spacing and you say, no, I, I got to I got to get home now. I got to I got to turn. You start turning your plane. We're vectoring you across for traffic or something. So that is the point. If you are just blatantly irresponsible, you would have to do something so egregious that we would reprimand you. And also, I saw, does that depend? Somebody, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's you. Uh, I was I was just um, I saw a video recently at Vegas. Yeah, the guy. <laughs> I thought you were going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, a case of someone just being being egregiously rude, and obviously they're going to get reprimanded or suspended or however the FISDA wants. We just report it. We don't handle with – we're not the principal. <laughs> you guys are the teachers that just say, go to the principal's <laughs> office. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was 9317 Romeo, and the guy was just a piece okay. of work. <laughs> yeah, he was just being rude, and I, I don't know if you saw the video footage, but the girl was doing it for his own – to protect those airline pilots. Because when you're an airline pilot and you're Cessna, you might be comfortable with someone being five foot, 500 feet off your left wing. But when you're flying a plane with 200 passengers, you don't want a Cessna 500 feet off your left wing. You don't feel good about that. You don't know who that guy is. Um, 
So they're going to get a TCAS resolution or advisory likely. 100%. And uh, I, I do note on that that audio that came up, the air traffic controller, he was in class B airspace. He was violating like for 100%. And she yeah. would, it sounded like she would, if he would have responded politely on the first one, you know, she just said exit the airspace or whatever. Like he would have been fine. He would have just left class yeah. B and everything would have been okay. And the controller would have just been like, you know, see a a hole. But <laughs> the point yeah. is, is that, um, you know that it seems it sounds like the when people talk about air traffic control in any sector a lot of it is just to help the pilots um from what i've understood and and get them from point a to point b safely yeah we're not here to get the pilots in trouble um obviously if someone's doing something wrong i do want to notify them we'll, we'll do what's called a brasher warning and make them call the tracon and it's not to get them in trouble like i don't even know where this information goes it's just basically to call them and say hey were you aware that you didn't have your mode c on like right by the bravo and what the problems that could cause like pilots can't see you on your t the tcas system so it's just to make that guy aware and usually they're just like oh cool sorry man i, I didn't i wasn't even aware so that's usually how that conversation goes um yeah we're, we're not here to get anyone in trouble perfect um yeah, that's something that I've always wondered too is what happens after you get the phone number. But most of the time it might be just to the Tracon, so that's that's okay. Hopefully I'll if I ever mess up, hopefully not, you know, <laughs> knock on wood, I might end up talking to Mike or something. So <laughs> yeah. um, next question. Um, the MSAs for uh, approach plates coming in. What does that look like on your end? How do you keep those in perspective when you have a plane coming in on approach? Yeah, so ATC doesn't care about MSAs. We care about MVAs, minimum vectoring altitudes. So that is the lowest altitude we can take take in assigned vectors, and that's yeah, that's that's our principal concern. Interesting. So yeah, because as pilots we have MSAs, and that's for our, our obstacle um, clearance, and it's off of you know a VOR in this case at Long Beach. So and what's I think MSAs are significantly higher. Like, what, what are you seeing off Long Beach there for the so MSA? Between 050 and 140 um, from Seal Beach, it's 4,400. And then to the north, okay. northeast, it's 7,700. To the southwest, it's 2,000. Oh, just kidding. I totally flipped this wrong. <laughs> I, I, I was reading it backwards. Um, so to the northeast, it's 2,800. To okay. the uh, northwest, it's 6,900. Southeast is going to be 4,400, and then southwest is 7,700. 7, so. Okay. Do the MSAs have a specific distance from the VOR where they, like, change in altitude? Oh, out to 25 nautical miles. Okay, so it's very generic. Um, gotcha. Yeah, our MVAs are lower than that because they're more specific. That makes sense. They, yeah. they can change, like, every mile. For us, it's literally just a, you know, if, if all crap is happening, get up to this altitude in this sector and re-get yourself together. Yeah. That's fair. Perfect. So I think that should be good. We covered altitudes. We oh speeds on approaches. You know, say for example, ninety knots. I'm flying. That's my typical for a Cessna 172 coming in on this approach. I'm pushing 100 or 110, or on the other side, I'm 70, 80. What does that look like for you on your screen? So we see your ground speeds. Obviously, you're, you're referring to true airspeed, I'm assuming, because that's what you're seeing on your needle. Yes. Um, I know you guys, I know you can see ground speed now with GPS equipment, so you can reference that as well. So, yeah, we see, we see your ground speed on the approach, and yeah, it it's obviously differs from your true airspeed. Because I'm going to report to you at, you know, if I'm, say, for example, I'm not able to meet <clears throat> 120 knots on the way in, I'm saying, hey, I'm only getting 90 to 100. Um, what does that mean to you? If I report that to you, 
Yeah, you don't need to say anything. A lot of times, like you're flying into Long Beach, we have Boeing 737s and you know Gulf Streams flying in. So I'll ask you, maintain, or even if there's just an, uh, a 170, 280 horsepower behind you that's slightly faster, Yeah. Hey, so, and you're the 160 horsepower guy that happened to be in front, maintain 100 knots to gunny. I'm basically just saying, I, I can give you a speed to gunny, and then beyond that, you can go as slow as you want. You can basically go to final approach speed if you want. Wow. Um, but I'm just ensuring my separation until that point, and then what, hap- what you do beyond that point isn't your, your, fro- your problem. And if you can't do that, it's on the pile to say unable. I can I can give you ninety. Okay, thanks for letting me know. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds pretty straightforward. Good information. Yeah. No. Um, so since we're still on approaches, VFR practice approaches. What do you do? You have a different approach to those, or kind of like what is the mindset in regards to actual IFR to just a VFR practice approach? Yeah, no, that's a great question because the mind, mindset is the complete opposite of IFR approaches. IFR priority. <clears throat> and IFR is what's, what can get us in trouble because we have separation minimums. VFR, we have no separation minimums. So a lot of times the frequency is so saturated, and we only call traffic to VFRs on a workload basis. So if the frequency is highly saturated, pilots need to keep their head in a swivel because we'll make traffic alerts as we can, but sometimes there's other transmissions going on the frequency from new pilots checking into the frequency that I can't even go out and say, hey, look out, November 1, 2, 3, basically traffic alert, and you know the whole phraseology there. So... Yeah, VFR practice approaches is a completely different dynamic, and that is the first thing to go if I feel like I'm falling behind in the sector and it's becoming too much. I'm, I'm at my capacity. I'm going to cancel all the VFR practice approaches and get things back to the basics until I get caught up. Um, and, you know, we, we don't provide any separation on those, really. There's no three miles in 1,000 feet, so they can... Uh, yeah, exactly. 100%. Put your hat, put your uh, three thousand feet behind another Cessna, and it's legit. <laughs> it's good to go. Um, yeah. So, as a first in instrument training pilot, I um, was always nervous to call up for VFR approaches. What phraseology would you recommend using? Say, I'm coming into Long Beach here, out of John Wayne, and I want to pick up a VFR practice approach. How would you prefer us to call and say that? So, if it's your first call with ATC, let's say you are maneuvering down by what's that? Uh, the Long Beach practice area down by Point Furman. And you're just with your instructor. You're not talking ATC yet. The instructor says, all right, let's call up ATC and shoot a practice ILS Long Beach. The information we need from you is call sign, type. We don't need your equipment suffix. Most pilots give that. We don't do anything with that information. So I'm sure your pilot is going to, your, your instructor is going to make you give it. But you can tell him I said we don't need it. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> he probably won't listen to me, but, um, or you since you're a student. We don't need the equipment suffix. We don't even listen to that um, in most circumstances. So call sign, type aircrafts, and your altitude and your intentions. We need your altitude because we need to verify that what you see yourself at is what we see you at to make sure your transponder readout or your mode C readout is correct. We have a 200-foot variance we're allowed. So if I see you're at 2,900 and you see 2,600 in your equipment with the altimeter set correctly, then we can use that. Um, So it is important that you give your current altitude. I feel like people are going to be able to relate to this, student pods who who – hear this so whenever i would be leaving john wayne in my private pilot days every time i would turn over to 125.35 on you know leaving the airspace they would always go you know report your altitude and i would always get so anal about my altitude for say for example they go up like 2400 and i'd be like 2350 and then like i'd always think like oh man like they're gonna know i'm off by 50 feet yeah um or that makes sense now that you say you have a 200 foot clearance and so if i'm off by a little bit it's not gonna be that big of a deal 
Yeah, we don't see 25 feet, 50 feet. It's just in hundreds, so Perfect. we don't see that. That makes – that just like that, – that, the little anxieties <laughs> that you don't know when you're starting your training, just like that's a big, big relief. So, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I think that kind of clears it up for approaches. Um, I think I covered everything that I needed to. Um, any other points you would add for an approach um, that I should know coming in? Anything on the missed approach, for example, that people should know or – the one thing I would say that's um, I'm going to rant a little bit here, but you don't need to constantly when altitude is all, your discretion. Anytime you're VFR, unless ATC, when you're VFR flight flying, unless ATC says November one, two, three, maintain VFR at four thousand five hundred. Okay, now don't change altitude unless you see traffic or terrain. You're still VFR, so if you see someone like, oh my god, the frequency is busy. Maybe he forgot about this guy I'm about to run into. Obviously, don't just stay at forty five hundred. Dip or dive, whatever you need to do. Um, but the main thing is you don't need, if you're not restricted, you don't need to say, Hey, we're at 3000, climb it to 4,000, just a random call. Like we don't care. Um, it's a good heads. I mean, it's good if heads up, if, if it's slow, but change altitude as much as you want, go all the way down to the lowest altitude you want all the way up to stay outside the Bravo, but change altitude as much as you want. We'll, we'll, we'll dodge you. Even in controlled airspace. So in controlled airspace in Bravo, Charlie, that in, in Bravo, that changes. Okay. Um, but if you're just out in the practice area, too often recently the frequency has been so congested and what's making it even worse is pilots notifying me every time they're changing altitude and i kind of make a general broadcast just so no one does it i say attention all vfr aircraft altitude is all your discretion you don't need to check in just to prevent just to keep the frequency under control because if a crew hears another pilot doing it and i say roger i don't want everyone to think they need to do it too so you can descend and climb as much as you want um, when i'm flying I will just give a, if I'm level at, let's say I'm flying from uh, Santa Monica down to Montgomery and I've been cruising at 5,500. I, before I start down, I will just give a general call, like approach one, two, three descending and I'll start down just so it kind of like to help me out. Hey, is there someone right below me? Just to give them a chance to scan the scope real quick. I won't ask just to give them room to say Roger or, Hey, there's someone right below you. Don't, don't descend. hundred percent. Yeah. That makes sense because uh, that's what the frequency at the practice area is for. You know, yeah, because yeah. I hear it all the time, and even my instructor <clears throat> back in the day go, you know, telling ATC we're going to be uh, doing stalls at four thousand five hundred feet. Yeah, um, don't care. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Sounds good. Um, very good, valuable information to know. So that covers for the most part approaches and last points. So let's go to um, emergencies. This is our big topic. You doing okay? All time wise and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Um, so emergency procedures for general aviation aircraft. We're just going to stick in the J GA category here. Um, so we're going to talk about services that can be provided for different situations. We're going to get into lost comms, um, low fuel, your airport landings, off airport landings, um, engine out fire, basically all the different types of scenarios that you can think of and kind of your input on it. So um, I first I wanted to start off with an example that my CFII currently experienced and he was wondering what your um, input on it would be. So he said, uh, we took off out of Fullerton, we were VFR climbing over Ontario when we started to experience engine roughness. We were eight miles out from the airport, Fullerton, and started to experience a partial loss of power. So what would be your protocols in this situation? Okay, so from a pilot's perspective, I won't touch on that because you already know what to do as far as aviate and navigate. And you're referring to 
what is the ATC's perspective? Yeah, so perspective? ATC's perspective. So he just took off out of Fullerton. He's eight miles out over Ontario. He's on his way on a long cross-country, supposedly, right? And then they start getting a rough engine running, and then he experiences a partial loss of power. He's, you know, declaring an emergency, and he's talking to ATC. What would be the situation for that? Okay, yeah. So I, I would say the first thing, let's say the frequency is really congested. You're having rough running engine, and you declare an emergency. Be as proactive as possible and don't wait for ATC to reach out to you. Start aviating and navigating immediately. And if you can't get on the frequency, Squawk 7500 will immediately see the emergency um, transponder come up. And we know, basically, when I see someone squawking emergency or they're in emergency, I get all planes out of their way. You're number one, no matter what. Over airlines, anybody. Um, even medevacs. Whatever it is, president, you're number one. Um, so our perspective is we have this tool where we can see where the nearest airport is and the runway length. So if you're en route, and I know most GPS, most GPSs can do this as well. If you need that information so at SoCal Tracon, we can pull that up. Outside of that, the minimum information we need is pilot's intentions, aircraft type, and call sign. We already have that. So you don't need to provide that. And the nature of the emergency. So what is the nature of the emergency and what are your intentions? You might say nature of emergency, rough running engine. I wanna, I'm going to turn around and land Fullerton. And all we're really going to say is Roger, and we're going to notif notify our supervisor, and um, just make sure, and we'll notify Fullerton Tower as well. You guys will start making a bunch of phone calls. Is that like kind of the procedures, or? Yeah, we have a quick line, so I'll call Fullerton Tower and say, "Hey, November six, November one, two, three. I've been using that call, so I'm gonna stick with it. November one, two, three is reversing course, coming back to you guys. So now they can start planning, and hopefully, you know, that aircraft that's on the downwind, maybe they'll extend them to follow you, but they can do everything in their power to make you. Number one, and no one do delay, essentially. Perfect. Sounds like a, a good situation for any pilot if they uh, they got it. Hopefully Mike's on the radios, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So uh, engine out, specifically an engine out. Does, does the procedure change much in regards for each emergency, or is it kind of just you know situational awareness for the controller and doing anything that they can to help, or just a brief it overview of emergencies? Yeah, so the process is the same. The same funnel that it goes through in the previous scenario goes through this. What are your intentions and what's the nature of the emergency? When you say engine out, I mean, obviously, you're landing. I don't know where you're going to land. The nearest spot, right, could be the 405. Um, hopefully not, but worst case scenario or the beach. We've seen that. Um, yeah, so we just get the pilot's intent, nature of emergency. When it's something that severe, that's where we pass it on to our supervisor because we have to keep working on their planes, so we can't stop what we're doing, but they have the ability, because they're more administrative, to start making calls to, hey, if this guy's gonna, if you're, if you're landing on the beach, we maybe want some paramedics there or something, you know, to, to assist you on the ground. Um, a, a phrase that we usually say is, do you require any assistance to rough running engine? Is there anything we can do to help is, when we say that is what we're asking? Um, and being a and pilot as well, you probably have a good perspective of sometimes I'll hear, you know, from these like captain <clears throat> reports or stuff that ATC was actually able to help pilots, say, for example, with your piloting experience, be like, hey, you know, did you check the mags? You know, like, did you, you know, yeah. um, put your pilot input into it as well? Yeah, we're, I've, got, I've been told I shouldn't do that. Um, there was a guy who had a hot, a hot engine the other day, or his engine temperature was a little high, his oil temperature. And part of me wanted to ask if he was if his mixture was too lean, but the FAA doesn't like us doing those kind of things. Even though you would think it would help the pilot, because I know a lot of these guys may not that I'm the most experienced pilot. I'm just a private pilot, but maybe I have more experience than the guy in the frequency, and I can help him. Um, but unfortunately, it's more of a liability thing. I don't I don't think they want us to give us much guidance. They haven't said directly, but 
it's not in our it's not in our protocol. Oh, um, really random, just popped in my head. Like uh, the start stop turns. Um, trying to figure that procedure. Uh, no gyro. No gyro, right? Perfect. That's what it was. No gyro coming in. That's check ride stuff. How would I would just request a hey, my gyro went out. Can you give me start stop turns? What's kind of your procedure for that? Yeah, um, in the military we used to train this a lot because it was those those planes are so crappy. It was more common, and, and the pilots would actually were forced to train it more. They would request no gyro approaches. Um, basically, what we're going to do at that point is initiate the no gyro vectors and we'll say turn left at that point we expect you to turn three degrees per second um so we're going to count in our head like okay he said he's on a 300 i need him on a two 270 one mississippi it's 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 really complicated last time i did it i told him this guy was zigzagging all over the place because i wasn't too proficient um and then we're going to say stop turn and we'll try to anticipate maybe two seconds early stop turn um it's it's not an ideal circumstance if, if it's bad weather, we'll do what we can to get you on the localizer. Um, in that situation, without gyros, preferably, we can just say proceed direct LUSIG or something to intercept the localizer so we can eliminate the vectors. Now, if you don't have RNAV, then we have to work with the vectors and, and do what we can. Um, preferably, we get you below the cloud layer, and you can cancel IFR and go on your merry way VFR back to Long Beach Airport or wherever. That's that's the ideal situation. Pulling resources of pyreps potentially to get those cloud bases and exactly bases is probably the most pirate common pyrep we ask for what are the cloud bases we'll ask pilots a lot when it's below five thousand feet and so we can get some pretty specific uh information you know around Huntington pier and wherever nice yeah it's pretty straightforward and that just hit my head so anyways cool <laughs> um <laughs> you banged out of the mic there what I just hit your head. Is that what you said? No, no. I said it just it popped into my head just oh, randomly. Okay. So I was like, oh, I got to get it out before I forget it again. I thought you doinked your head on the microphone. Oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> um, <laughs> low fuel. So when I'm declaring, hey, I got minimum fuel, obviously in our perspective as a pilot, we go, ATC is just going to give us a little bit more expedited handling. What does that mean for you on your end? Yeah, so there's minimum fuel and emergency fuel. So minimum fuel, you're not number one, like in the emergency situation. It's just no undue delay. So we shouldn't be spinning you. But if you're min fuel, I'm still running air carries in front of you. Um, I'm, I'm just keeping the operation flowing. Um, we don't deal with this too much. I dealt with a lot with fighter pilots. Um, when I was in the military, they'd come back min fuel be just because the way the missions were run. They had four hours of fuel and the Air Force would make them fly for three hours and 50 minutes. And they always came back min fuel. <laughs> Um, so it's very rare. Um, now, emergency fuel, if you're very uncomfortable, make sure you pilot state emergency fuel. Don't say minimum if you feel like you have five to ten minutes left. Just, I'd say when in doubt, bust that E-word out. Just say emergency. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain, right? Except paperwork. Yeah. You know what? And I always assume there's a lot of paperwork. Um, one of my coworkers who's a pilot had to declare an emergency recently because his gear was stuck up. And he... I've heard stories where people just landed, taxied back to parking, and there was no – we don't make you fill out any paperwork that I'm aware of unless management does. So I've heard situations and stories, and I could be wrong, where possibly declared an emergency, they just land, taxi to parking, and that was it. So I think a little paperwork is worth it if it's you know putting you in a safe situation. 100%. Um, yeah, that's another side of, I eventually want to get an FAA guy on here and, you know, talk about all that fun getting in trouble <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> yeah, you need to get someone from the uh, FDS or uh, FSDO on there, right? I probably should so, be a good person yeah. to contact. So, um, but anyways, last emergency procedure would be lost comms, the famous 9185, 91.185, right? Um, so we have our Avenue F and MEA as a pilot, um, 
for <clears throat> what we're supposed to do when we lose our comms. So I'm squawking 7600. I'm on a flight plan to Santa Barbara. Um, what would be, obviously I have my assigned first, um, what you've given me. And then I have my vectored. I got to remove all this stuff, vectored. So whatever vectors I'm on. Um, then I have my expected once I lost those comms. And then I have my as filed. So it's kind of like the, the degeneration in that order. Um, and that has to do with my, my navigation. And then for my altitude, um, it's the MEA, which is like your minimum. This is the, this is the fun part. Expected and then um, assigned, right? I'm trying okay. to think. Um, and so what is the lost comms look? I probably just butchered that and I got to study that more. But. You know what, Justin? I think you just nailed it more. I bet if, if, if we randomly quizzed a pop quiz citation pilot that's been flying 10 years, what is, it, what is the protocol for lost comms? I bet you gave a better response than they would because so. that gets lost, right, over time and it's hardly ever reviewed. And the reason I came to that assumption is because I've seen it in practice and no one ever does it right. Half the time, people don't even squawk 7,600. We just know, okay, this guy hasn't responded to us. But first, we reach out. You don't respond. We try and guard. We'll ask you to ident. Maybe you're a receiver only. You can hear us, but your, your transmissions aren't going out. So that we can work with. We'll just have you acknowledge with an ident on every transmission. Turn left heading 170, acknowledge with ident. Then you push your ident button and turn. Um, that, that's, that's manageable. Now, complete no radio situation, that is where most pilots do it wrong. And we had one recently, last um, about a week or two ago, I was working. Pilot was coming into Orange County, radio failure. It was a smaller jet. And he was flying the KO arrival. I know you probably don't have that star in front of you, but it's from the northeast, and it ends at Seal Beach. So he starts holding over Seal Beach and maneuvering at 8,000. What we're thinking from the ATC side is we don't know what this guy is going to do. Unfortunately, they don't have that checklist memorized like you do, yeah. um, and it's, it's not predictable. So I just view it as this plane is basically rogue. Get everyone out of the way. So I'm coordinating, I'm working the Orange County final, German Airport final, I'm coordinating with the feeder sectors, the other air traffic controllers that are, have the planes coming in, and I'm telling them to hold them. So we're coordinating ahead of time, in case this plane turns back to the airport and starts descending, we don't want to create an unsafe situation where he's descending on another Boeing or something like that. You said the uh, OC2 RNAV arrival? The, K, uh, the KO2, it's spelled uh, K-A-Y-O-H. Let's pull it up. And I, I don't know the number. It might not be KO2 anymore, but. Yeah, El, El Toro, Hero, and Mika, Piggin, oh, the stars. KO7. Yeah, the KO7, okay. Okay, perfect. I'm looking at it. This is good for me, too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're looking so at it. So what it did is he went from KO to Seal Beach, I believe it calls for, and he stayed at 8,000 feet, never squawked 7,600. We tagged him as a radio failure. We have the capability to do that if they don't pass our little quick test. Um, and now it's basically, okay, what is this guy going to do? He's circling over Seal Beach at 8,000. All of our LA arrivals come right through there. we got to get everyone out of the way. It causes chaos if it's busy. Because the uh, whole potential. thing for uh, lost comms is what we're taught as pilots is that we're supposed to be predictable. And part of that acronym is that we're supposed to, you know, that's like our, our guide basically to, for you guys to know exactly what we're going to do. But it sounds like on your end, it seems like it's like a, a toss-up because that's what's also the fun part about talking about this is because the actual lost comms versus the reality of what happens um, from what I've heard from pilots too is always so different than just like your, your textbook, do this, do that procedure. Yeah, I would say the most predictable about thing about lost comm pilots is it's completely unpredictable. And I'm surprised 
pilots hardly ever squawk 7600 when they go lost comms. I don't know if they're just thinking, oh, we're troubleshooting it. Maybe in five minutes we can get the radio working. If you haven't heard from ATC in like a minute or two, squawk 7600. There's, you're not going to get in trouble. You would actually just helping us. You're, you're because we get an alarm that goes off, and basically say, hey, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? I'm squawking 7600. If you can't hear me, at least I'm alerting you, and you can get all the planes out of my way to put me in a safe situation. So I don't see a situation where you would ever get in trouble for squawking 7600 if you thought you couldn't get in touch with somebody. So I would say be more proactive with that. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if pilots are just afraid to do it. I, I don't know the answer. I would love to you know, ask one sometime in that situation. I haven't figured out. I've never met anyone that's gone through. Because apparently it's a really rare situation in aviation to actually lose your both comm radios because a lot of air, aircraft have two. So. What happens in practice, we notice, is... Okay, let's say you go, I'm on 2535 and I switch you to 27.2. And then 27.2 switches you to 131.1. Well, you probably didn't dial a new frequency. You went back to 2535. Yeah. So a lot of times pilots are just on the wrong frequency. Um, rarely ever are both comms out. I think it's typically, it's operate, operator error on the pilot's part. They, they turn down their volume or, you know, something silly. Yeah, and uh, if you did happen to lose your comms electrical system, just thinking about how that works, you're probably going to have a bigger issue at hand, so. Yeah, alternator failure. I mean, who knows what the heck's going on, but. Amen. Um, so have you experienced any personal emergencies in regards to your flying or air traffic control that you've been a part of? No. Um, so as, as far as my personal flying, I was on a cross-country once to Palm Springs, and I came back. I, I think I hung out there a little longer. The lounge, uh, I think it's Signature Aviation, has a nice pool. So I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, you know, flying a 152, my like one of my first solo cross-countries, hanging out a little longer than I should have, and I come back, and all the SoCal airports are socked in. <clears throat> so I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit, and um and, and actually lost my comms with ATC going through the mountains, and I lost my VOR signal. This was before GPS, um, which makes me sound old. But um, So don't have a VOR signal. Don't have comms with ATC going, going over those mountains. So I'm just trying to head west. I'm like, okay, if I head west and hit the shoreline, I can figure out where the hell I am at, at a minimum. Um, and it probably wasn't the best job out of me. Um, so I get back to SoCal, Montgomery Field, a little late, and they're socked in. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell is the nearest airport that's VFR. And fortunately, Ramona, if you're familiar with that, about a 15-minute flight north was a little inland. So I land at Ramona, and I, uh, you know, call it a night, get a hotel, and uh, in the morning I wake up and fly back to Montgomery. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, the worst situation you can be in is not having a place to land for sure. But yeah, uh, that's always kind of a blessing and a curse sometimes if you have to wake up and fly again the next morning. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely, just staying overnight somewhere. Um, yeah, I think that covers pretty much anything else you want to add in regards to just the pilots, IFR world, and things I should know moving forward. Any general tips, advice for people that are in my, my spot right now? Yeah, I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're ever uncertain about an action given from ATC, I'll always ask, like, if you if they say turn left heading zero eight zero and you're and you think Roger one eight zero and they, they don't maybe they don't always hear your readback. It happens. It's human nature. And then you second guess yourself. Did they say zero eight zero one eight zero? Just say ATC. Did you say eighty heading or one eighty? What, what do you want? And you know they, they'll be happy to help because we'd rather you just do it right than do some crazy turn that might point you right at terrain or traffic. Um, and also, kind of like we touched on, if you're having trouble, never be afraid to ask. That that's what we're here for, right? Um, so the pilots are kind of the consumers, and ATC is the product, um, or maybe vice versa. But 
if you're having lost communication, squawk 7600, don't hesitate. And same thing with emergencies. Put that 7500 code out and be proactive and, and get back on course and just be safe. Don't worry about troubling ATC at all. Cool. That sounds like fantastic advice. And uh, we covered approaches, communication, um, emergency procedures for the most part. For It sounds like it's pretty standardized for you. Um, and I think that'll be it. So I appreciate your time, Mike, for coming on. Um, super exciting. And uh, any last words where people can find you? You also have a podcast. You want to mention yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I just realized, was I getting the beacon code wrong? Is emergency 75 or 77? I get hijacked and emergency get fused. Maybe you know this. 75 is hijacked. 76 is okay. lost comms. And then 77. Okay. I just realized for the past. So don't squawk 7,500 people if, if you had emergency. <laughs> squawk 7,700. Um, yeah, our podcast, um, we do an apartment investing podcast to my coworkers from SoCal Tracon. It's called The Multifamily Takeoff. Um, you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Apple iTunes is Apple and um, Google Play. I think it's on all those spots. So, yeah, check us out if you're into apartment investing. Yeah, I checked it out this morning actually when I was at work and listened to it. It's pretty, it's really interesting. I listened to the first one with this lady who was very successful in her real estate ventures and all that. And she was from Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, so oh, yeah, yeah. I forget her name, but Anna um, Kelly, yeah. Yeah, this is another part for young people like me. If you guys are watching this, I talk about my side hustle videos and all that and how to make extra cash because flying is expensive. But you're at the I next love phase. It, man. You're in that next phase of your life where it's like, not only do I need to, like, you already got yourself set up with ATC and, you know, you got that paycheck coming in. Now it's like, okay, what am I going to do to build that, you know, legacy wealth like your, your lady was yeah. talking about on that, po that podcast? So, um, that's something I obviously need to look into as well and start thinking about the big long-term investing. And so if you guys want to go check that out, make sure it's the multi-family takeoff podcast, right? Yes. Multi-family yeah. takeoff. So make sure you guys go check that out. And uh, that'll be it for us today, guys. JPL Aviation is where leadership and aviation take off. Thanks. Cool. That's it. Awesome. You did a great job, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I know, I know it's not easy to host coming up with the curriculum and everything or, or the content. And uh, you do a great job. Yeah.